Are we doing this? Really? Wait for it. Are we doing this? Wait for it. Ow! What the fuck? WTF. And it's also, eh, what the fuck? What's wrong with me? It's time for WTF. What the fuck? With Mark Marin. Okay, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? And what the fuck, Nicks? Let's keep it tight. I am Mark Marin. This is WTF. Thank you for joining me. Today on the show, Mindy Kaling from The Office. Yes, that Mindy Kaling. I will be talking to her, but can we do a couple of things before those of you who are hanging in, sticking with me, want to hear me chat about some important things? Important things. First, where am I playing, you ask? Hey, Mark, where can we see you? Well, how about this weekend at the Gilda Fest in Grand Rapids, Michigan? March 15th, I'll be doing a stand-up show. And March 17th, I'll be doing a live WTF with Drew Hastings, Tommy Jonigan, Kevin Nealon, Alan Zweibel, with hopes of Jim Gaffigan. You can go to laughfestgr.org for information on that. I will be at the Comedy Attic in Bloomington, Indiana, March 23rd through 25th. Uh, go find that. Also, on the 27th of this month, we're doing a live WTF at the Trippany House, which used to be the Steve Allen Theater, trippanyhouse.org, T-R-E-P-A-N-Y-H-O-U-S-E.org. Might be sold out. Check that out. All right. Enough of that. Oh, can I also do this, please? Do you mind? Can you give me a second? Uh, my old friend Rob Sacker, who used to own and run the Luna Lounge, which many of you have heard about on this podcast... Uh, on the Lower East Side, where we did the Luna Lounge, the original alt comedy shows in New York in the 90s. They also did a lot of music, but he's written a book called Wake Me When It's Over, uh, and, and I recommend it. Not because I'm, I'm part of the cover and there's some stuff in there on me, but because uh, he wrote a book about a time that is no more and was important to me and to many others. You can go to wakeme.net to get hold of that book. Now, what else is going on? A Day in the Life on Hulu, Morgan Spurlock's documentary program, premieres today on Hulu, and the topic is me. Mark Marin, documentary style. I know some of you are thinking, Mark, how much more of you do we need in our lives? How much more of you can we take? That's a question that was raised kind of clunkily by Steve Heisler a week or so ago in the uh, Onion AV Club. In his article, uh, Are We Nearing Comedy Podcast Overload? Well, look, I'm not going to shit on Steve Heisler. Certainly, I'm not going to shit on the Onion AV Club. Uh, they've been very kind to me, and I and I like their writing. The, the premise of this is basically that, well, if you got a, com a comedian that you like, and he's got a podcast on once or twice a week, and I go to clubs and I see him uh, doing uh, comedy, and, and also... Uh, uh, I, I buy his comedy records. Why would I want to see that guy? All, all the, uh, the the mystique is destroyed. It's not special anymore. Because basically he's saying that he can listen to my podcast, hear me talk about something. And then he says he went to two different shows here in Los Angeles, unpublicized shows, shows that I was not publicized as being part of. And I was trying to work out material. Sometimes, as you know, I think about things on this show out loud and I go to in the back of my head. I say, holy shit, that'd be I should explore that comedically. And then I start chiseling away at it. I just think it's a false premise. I think that if you're a fan of somebody's and you hear them talk and you like the way they think, 
Why wouldn't you want to go see him? I'm sorry that Steve Heiswer wasn't surprised when he showed up at two small shows and saw me working on the same bit twice because I was trying to get into shape for when I go out and play for publicized shows out on the road when I'm doing an hour and I'd like to have some new material. I'm sorry that this guy wasn't surprised or excited to see me go through the process of honing a bit from raw thought and raw talk into a stand-up comedy piece. Now, obviously, many of you know that, look, some of you don't like me at all. Some of you are annoyed with me. Some of you have grown to like me. Some of you think that I talk too much or I'm too honest about stuff. But I, I, I'm saving some things. I'm hiding things from you people. I want you to know that. That there are some things that I don't share. Some of you don't even know what I look like. I do shows and people come up to me and think, and they say, wow, you sounded a lot fatter, which is always a great icebreaker with me. If you really want to you know, win my heart over in that moment that uh, we meet each other after a show, uh, that is a good one. You sounded so much fatter. You're not fat at all. That's great. Why don't you hang out here? Sit with me while I meet other people. That's what will happen. But I, I, I understand the argument. Obviously, I chose to do... He quotes Chris Hardwick in this, in this, uh, in this article, and he sort of takes a, the lead from another article that basically is talking about comedy records because at some point Hardwick said that podcasts are the new comedy albums. That's not what I'm doing. I'm not doing a comedy record here. I mean, right now, do you hear an audience laughing at what I'm saying? I mean, am I even saying something that's funny? No. It's a completely different mode of expression, a completely different medium. And the problem I have with articles like this is podcasting is a small, young medium. We're trying to to grow it. We're trying to bring more people into it. Obviously, there will come a time where most all listening of radio product or audio product will be on demand. But right now, uh, we're still struggling to get people to get past figuring out how to, to get a podcast. There's still a lot of people like, how do you, what a podcast? What do you, do you just get on the computer? Yes. Are you a moron? I just don't know why the criticism. I mean, I think that he's preaching to a very small choir when he talks about uh, any sort of uh, mystique being destroyed uh, by, by comedians who are podcasting and whether or not we've hit some sort of limit with comedy podcasting. I think it's really just starting. And I also was a little upset that he diminished the process of working out a bit that is part of our process because he showed up at two shows that I was anonymously on and, and got upset that I wore the same shirt twice. I like the shirt. Back off. So needless to say, if you want to get more of me or see me in my house or walk through a day with me, this uh, day in the life on Hulu, which premieres tonight, I liked. And I don't like myself all the time, maybe half the time. Some days are better than others. But this, this thing was really shot well. I think it was an honest portrait of what my day looks like. And uh, I, th- I thought it was compelling. And that's not because I necessarily find myself compelling. It was just interesting to watch. I'm happy there's not a lot of that out there and that it may be a little surprise some of you. You know, I had a guy pitch a, a, a documentary on me. This guy, Barry uh, uh, Blaustein, wanted to, to shoot a, a full-length documentary feature on me about a year or so ago. And I just couldn't handle it. I couldn't handle the idea. I couldn't, I, I believe it or not, felt like I would be intruded upon. And, and documentary filmmakers are like, no, we're just going to fade into the woodwork. Except you're going to be right there when I wake up. Except you're going to be you know, sleeping in the bed with me and Jessica, which I find awkward. No, I know you say that. I'm not going to notice, but you're going to be in the bed. But I think more so than anything, I was sort of, I actually have a part of me that I don't uh, necessarily want to share yet. 
I mean, you can hear me on on Sex Nerd Sandra's show. I walked away from that show thinking like, oh boy, now now there's more of me out there. I don't know if I needed people to know I have sensitive nipples. Was that important that they know that? But I was that was the context of the show. So I'm still I'm still got a few things that you don't know about. But I think in the bigger picture, I was frightened of of uh doing a full feature length documentary because at that time i didn't know how it was going to end and generally documentarians aren't going to give you final say so it could have gone either way there's an underdog story associated with me because i tend to associate it with me because it is true but i don't know when (laughs) when i'm gonna fuck it up but Please, I, I I encourage you to go uh, watch Day of the Life if you like me, and also I encourage you to come do to come to my stand up shows if you like what I do, because there's a difference between hearing me say this to you personally in this private moment we're having right now, and for you to be sitting in a room full of like minded people enjoying the uh, crafted uh, stand up material. Yeah, I may share. Yeah, look, I've I've only got so big a life, so I, obviously I talk about things in both places, but. There's a big difference in how they're presented, and that's the process, and that's why I don't think it's overexposure yet. I am running out of life, though. I need to do something. I need to, I don't know, mountain climb, bungee jump, something. Uh, you know, maybe take in a foster child. Wait, I, my, my girlfriend just moved in. All right, we're good. We're good. There's going to be new material. I got to tell you, the music on the show today, what are you kidding me? Hello? Hi. Why are you calling on this phone? I'm, I'm recording, baby. I'm sorry. Are you coming home? Okay, I got to go get cat food and uh, we got to pick up that dry cleaning, but I'll, I'll go do that and you go do what you got to do. I'll talk to you in a little while. Okay. All right. Do that. I love you. Bye. Okay, baby. I love you. I love you too. Bye. All right. Let's do this again. The music on the show today is by The Farthest Forests. Go download their music for free at thefarthestforests.com. And if you live in New England, see them live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth, New Hampshire on April 21st. That's thefarthestforests.com. What is this? A tongue twister all right okay that's that that is so cool dr katz yeah. yeah that is to be able to have that there that is really cool yeah i mean people are finding that stuff again you know i mean that's a long time ago and i think i'm on two of them and now people, like, they're available again. That's the weirdest thing, is when people come up to you go, I just heard you on Dr. Katz. I'm like, were you time traveling? I love it. Did you watch it when you were a kid? Yeah, I did. That's you, when I was kind of deciding I liked comedy. Really? Yeah, but it was so gentle. I mean, that's when Comedy Central could have, like, a gentle thing like that on. That's a good point, though, that there was a time where Comedy Central was not all about aggression, profanity, yeah. shocking. Yeah, they don't, uh, they don't do that. Well, that tone of a show, I don't think you would see. So what? How old were you then when you watched Dr. Katz? Probably 13. Really? Mm-hmm. And that was part of your life? Comedy Central was? Yeah, it was that and the X-Files. Oh, really? Those were, on, like, Those the, were the two worlds you were in? Yeah, the, and I used to make my mom watch. Well, 
I I talked about this. Like, there's a time when Comedy Central was like, you'd be like, what is this? Like, it's just, just like Porky's or weird old SNL compilation right? shows. Yeah. So this was original programming that was good. So you grew up in where? I grew up in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Where? Like where? Like where'd you go to school? I went to BBNN, uh, a private school. Spark Street. Yeah. How did you know that, dude? I uh, I spent a lot of time there. My my cousin, my dad's first cousin, who I used, who I loved, they literally lived next door to that school. You know that gray house on the corner of Sparks and what is it, Huron? Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. That house must be nice. That's a really nice neighborhood. Yeah, she uh, he was a teacher, but they I don't know they had the house forever, and I used to stay in the basement at that house. It was so nice. right next to that school. Mm-hmm. Where'd you grow up in Cambridge? Like what area? Freshmont Parkway, like not the West. Cambridge, Nicey area. My parents moved when I was eighteen to uh, Weston, outside of which is Weston, Mass. Yeah, yeah. I, sp- I spent like- a lot of time running around there. Really? Yeah. Why? Because I went to college at BU. I was okay. there for five years undergrad. Then I came out here and got all you know fucked up on mm-hmm. drugs at the comedy store. Mm-hmm. And then I went back and started my comedy career there at Catch Rising Star right. in Harvard Square. Mm-hmm. So I, I like I know that place. Yeah. I, I worked at the Coffee Connection. Mm-hmm. Do you remember in the garage? Cafe A, where you used to get pizza there. Oh, right, and right. there's like a faux pasteur and... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I got my ears pierced there. Really? At yeah. the garage? Yep. Newberry Comics was there? Yeah, that's like kind of where bad kids went. Oh, really? Yeah, there in the pit. That's like where you could go. And then oh, right. you go we're... to the Army-Navy surplus and buy pants and stuff, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're the pit, you mean that that triangle where all the action was outside? Yeah, where you could buy weed is what we heard. And, and smoke, oh, what you heard. You were yeah. a good kid. Yeah, of course it was a good kid. <laughs> do you think? You were never tempted to by to cross over into the bad world. No, at prep school there were no bad kids. No, there were bad kids. Uh huh. They were they they were bad kids. Yeah, yeah, they were having sex at thirteen and stuff like that. That wasn't obviously that's not those aren't kids I knew except like in art classes I would take art classes with them maybe. And th- there was no ever any fascination with like those kids. Yeah, of course there was fascination, <laughs> but I wasn't friends with them. <laughs> I was normal. I mean, I wish they could be like that. You're saying this like it was just last year. The, the intensity of your <laughs> also, my voice sounds like I'm 12 years old too. <laughs> you were like, like don't my... don't associate me with them. They were not my friends. Well, I remember there was kids that were bad because they would want to like dine and dash at the Chili's in Harvard Square. Oh, that's bad. We would go on Friday nights, and they would be like, "We should dine and dash." And I was like, "I can't. That's too much. I can't do that. It's too stressful of a situation." Oh, that was uh, that was the uh, that was your fear of breaking the law. Was it just too much anxiety? Yeah, bad kids. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> How do you like, guys live with yourselves? With that stress. <laughs> no, it, it was never never moral, but it was the, they did that or they were having sex. That's how you knew a kid was bad. You don't. You didn't even make out in in junior high. No. Wow. When yeah. did that happen for you? God, this is embarrassing. I. Um, um, no, I have mine. I was late. Um, making out was end of. End of high school, college. Really? Yeah. What, now, where do you get this discipline or this fear that? Oh, uh, I didn't want that. Wasn't I didn't want that to be the case. <laughs> that just was the because when you're like a chubby Indian thirteen year old, it's not like there's a line out the door <laughs> to make out with you. So I would have loved to. I mean, if you'd asked a thirteen year old version of me, I would have wanted to lose my virginity at like nine or something. Like I just wanted, but this wasn't an option. So you you were socially awkward. I wasn't, I think I was actually socially fine. I was always just like, there was like a one really friendly, chubby, creative kid. Like that's what right. I was like. So I wasn't, I don't think I was all that socially awkward. I just wasn't like, so the kind of girl you wanted to smooch or something like that. And when, like your parents are first generation, uh, uh, they, they were born in India? Yeah. Born in India, met in Africa and then moved to Cambridge. 
met in Africa? Mm-hmm. Where in Africa? In Nigeria. How did that work out? Um, they both moved to uh, Africa for work. My mom is an OBGYN. She's a doctor, and she was working at the hospital that my dad, who's an architect, was like building a wing for. And so I think if you like identify another Indian person, they're, they're from totally different parts of India. So, yeah. So they just spoke English to each other. Yeah. And so uh, they met there and they like kind of fell in love and got married and then moved to the US. A romantic Nigerian meeting. Is it? It kind of is. I think it's, it's, it's very like international. I like yeah. that. That's do, are, you that w- are you that way? I mean, no, do you- I hate leaving the continental United States. Do you, have rel- do you still have family in India? Yes. A lot of family in India. So you go? No, I haven't been back there since I was 14. 14, though. So you went. You did the one yes. the one trip. Yeah. We have to go see your aunt and... My grandparents and stuff like that. Really? Yeah. They're all there? Uh, My mom's side of the family is all here, but my dad's side of the family is all still in South India. And what was the religious background? Hindu. Really? Mm-hmm. I find, see, I find this fascinating. Really? I, well, yeah, because I have a, an, at times, almost obsessive um, thing about India. Really? Yeah. Okay. It's all based on my uh, my love of the food. Okay, you love Indian food. I love Indian okay. food, but I also love Ganesh. I like the uh, the elephant. Mm-hmm. I like uh, I have a few Ganeshes around. Okay. I was sort of obsessed with Ganesh, but I don't. Uh, it's not founded like I never was obsessed to the point where it's like I have to learn more. I just like the colors. Mm-hmm. I like the food. Uh, I can generally, in a, a sort of inverted racism way, say I like the people. But it's all based on my experience. Well, can I ask you a question? Mm-hmm. Um, are you Jewish? Yes. Okay. I have found that Jewish guys really appreciate like Indian stuff in a way that I've always really, I've always liked. Uh-huh. And I thought that was, uh, I think it's cool. Really? And, yeah. and that's something you've definitely seen? No, totally. I think that there's like a, um, well, you know that saying that like Indians are the new Jews? Uh, I haven't heard that, but I, I, I will from here forward say that. Okay. Good. I want you to d- start telling that to everyone you meet. But I, uh, <laughs> yeah, I think that there's there's a lot of similarities kind of growing up. So I've always, whatever, for whatever reason I was, and obviously because I'm a comedy writer, yeah. I meet a lot of Jewish guys. Yeah. But uh, yeah, Jewish guys seem to just love like Indian food. Like I've always felt that uh, been really interested in the culture and Hinduism and Judaism are compatible we both have a common hatred for Muslims. Like it's like there's a good. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. we're we're a good match. But it's also compatible in the sense that there's this weird kind of centuries old tradition that may be sort of uh, you know uh, weird and and not quite knowable when you're younger, mm-hmm. but you still are part of it. That's Absolutely. The, yeah. Was that is that the way you grew up? I mean, did, I don't know what a religious service in Hindi is, but I, no, I don't. I don't either. I mean, because <laughs> I grew up just speaking English. Like yeah. a lot of my other Indian friends, whose parents yeah. they spoke another language too, but. No, and I mean, for religious stuff, I mean, we both, my brother and I knew that we were Hindu, but we didn't do a lot of, like, we didn't go to, like, there's not, like, you know, Hebrew school or whatever on Sundays or church. And Hindu's the blue guy. No, that's Krishna. Yeah, no, I don't know. Are they know. the same, are we in the same ballpark? I have, I, I know so little about my religion. I'm sorry. <laughs> but you know, I didn't know that this is what it was going to be about. No, you, I really, I would have brushed up a little bit more. No, but you know who Ganesh is, right? Absolutely, yeah. Of course, and, and he's an elephant head guy. Yeah, that's the, like Hinduism 101. Of course I know who, like, you can have a very cursory understanding of Hinduism and know who Ganesh is. Right. The Simpsons, like, talks about Ganesh. Okay, yeah. all right, so, yeah. all right, so that's where, okay, back to the watching TV and watching comedy. No, I'm just sort of fascinated with it. Did you, okay, did you eat at old, old Calcutta? Old Calcutta in uh, on Central on Mass Ave in Central Square. Old Calcutta, no, down towards the end. If we were going to go out, we didn't have we didn't usually go out for Indian food. Does your mom cook really good Indian food? Yeah, but she was she has like she has like six recipes. Yeah, and she's a 
she's a doctor, so she's pretty busy. So right. I love my mom's cooking, but I know that it's not like the kind of, it's not the way that a lot of other Indian moms cook, so, yeah. but that's, I like it. So. Like what's the favorite dish? She makes samosas from scratch, which is oh, pretty, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's a pretty big deal. Yeah. Um, but she does it in like you, it's like only for your birthday and only even then it's like the 16th birthday or like a 21st, like only like a big deal birthday. That's samosa day? Yeah. And you like hear about it for months after about how she like made the samosa. So, but it's worth it. They're awesome. I know how to do that is what she's saying. Yeah, I can do that. I absolutely. have that skill set. And then, um, yeah, she makes like uh, goat curry, which I, I love, I love goat meat. It's, yeah, it's yeah, good. It is good. It's like pungent lamb. Yeah, it's awesome. And it stays with you. You sweat goat. <laughs> yes, you, you do. <laughs> yeah. So we have that like once in a while. So she has like, a, you know, four recipes. Uh-huh. So where did you end up uh, really starting to um, do comedy? I mean, how did that evolve? I mean, you're obviously, you had, you had a nice life. You had good parents. Yeah. You know, you grew up, you know, not really wanting for anything. And you chose this career path. When did that first hit you where it's like, I'm going to do comedy things? What was it? I was always a comedy nerd. You know, like I had, um, I was always into Kids in the Hall. I would watch things like Dr. Katz, but like much more than like other friends who also like knew the shows. Like I needed to know who was in the credits, you know, like that kind of thing. Really? Where like I'd watch like SNL and I'd right. like actually care about who was on the writing staff. Really? Just because I wanted to like see what they were like or like what they're, and this is before like internet. Right. So it was a very mysterious world that it like isn't right now. Did you like, write things down? And, and Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I used to print out, I used to transcribe like a, like sketches on, on Saturday Night Live that I like loved. By the way, I didn't have like good comedy taste, but I I loved comedy. Like I took everything in. You transcribed sketches? Yeah, like, like I would transcribe like a Gap Girl sketch on Saturday Night Live. Really? Just to see what the structure was and like how many lines each person had and that kind of thing. And what age were you? I mean that, I started watching SNL, like that was even younger. That was maybe like nine or 10. Do you remember who the, what the cast was or who the players were or like which ones first made an impression yeah, on Yeah, Dana Carvey was a huge influence on me in like in terms of loving comedy because he was one of those SNL guys who like I loved, my parents loved. Um, his characters were just very like simple with like a high premise and I, I just, I loved him. Also, I, th I have a crush on Dana Carvey. Like yeah. I thought he was gorgeous. Have you met him since? No, never. Do you want to? Yeah, I love to meet Dana Carvey. He's awesome. And okay, so when, what was the first active engagement with like doing something comedic? I think um, probably wasn't until really college. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then I started writing sketches and would write these short plays and things like that. And you had, were you part of a sketch troupe? Oh, it wasn't. Uh, yes, I was in an improv troupe, but I wasn't in a sketch troupe. In college? Yeah. Where'd you go to college? Dartmouth. Fancy. It is fancy, right? Uh, I like moderately fancy. It's so it's like in the middle of nowhere. Um, isolated fancy. Isolated fancy, yes. <laughs> Off yeah. the grid fancy. <laughs> it's Ivy League school, right? Mm -hmm. That's fancy. <laughs> well, what were you majoring in? Uh, I was a classics major, which means Latin. Really? Yeah. Where did that come from? I just taken Latin since I was in seventh grade. So you just thought that was the next step? Kind of. I mean, I was like a Latin whiz at my high school. Like, that was my big thing, as I was good at Latin. Are you, can you still do it? Do it? Latin. D translate it? Yeah. I think that, I feel like your persona in this is like, you're fancy, so I won't even say translate. I'll say, do you do Latin? <laughs> you knew that the word was translate. Well, no, I got in trouble once because I, uh, I had said, I'd asked somebody if they spoke Latin because I had another guest 
who uh, I think it was I think it might have even been Chris Hardwick. Okay. And uh, and then someone's like, no, no one speaks Latin, mm-hmm. and, but they do in in like Catholic ancient Rome, right? In ancient Rome and Catholic uh, services. Services, you're right. I mean, it's still used. Absolutely. So someone made me feel like an idiot. So instead of say speak Latin, I got jumbled and I just went do with do. do one way or the other. Yeah. Like that, I thought that would cover speaking and translating. I shouldn't have picked any of that. That was dumb. I'm sorry. Oh, no, it's all right. I can handle it. I can translate like coins and things like that. <laughs> in buildings, they have lots of Latin shows up in the weirdest places. So, Like the first impulse I had in that moment was like, I'm getting a coin. <laughs> but I, I didn't do that. <laughs> But you seem like such a, a, a sort of like career-minded person now around what you do. Really? What does that mean? I mean that like they're like when people I knew when they started comedy, like I think when you were growing up and once you started to get involved with show business, mm-hmm. that, and I'm projecting this, mm-hmm. that it became clear that it was possible, that, that there was a series of steps that you could maybe take to get what you wanted. But you didn't feel that way? No, no, no. I just, I'm, I, but I'm, I'm, there's no way to judge. I mean, I just wanted to be a stand up comedian. It was very limited and it was based on the fact that it, it I didn't seem to have to do much. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? If I yeah. could just figure out how to be funny in front of a microphone, mm-hmm. th- that it work out. Mm-hmm. But like I've become sort of, you know, fascinated and, and less judgmental of younger people in the industry who somehow or another at a younger age realize like, wow, there are these steps and there's, you know, if I work on this and I do these sketches and I, I mean, again, I'm projecting a whole Mm -hmm. life onto you, but you did improv in in college. Didn't know, were your parents like, no, you must stay with Latin. (laughs) Um, (laughs) No, I, uh, I'm lucky. I have my parents, they were, they loved me doing theater and stuff like that. Really? Yeah. They, um, you know, they didn't know that. They didn't come from that world at all, but I, they really appreciated it. I mean, my, my parents, like, I was, I grew up where my parents liked Seinfeld more than me. Do you know, like, they yeah. loved, they would watch Dr. Katz yeah. uh, and stuff with me, and they really love comedy. Uh-huh. Um, and so I think they were excited about it, um, you know, and then when I could make a living doing it, that was nice for them. So you have memories of that? They really, like, they were comedy fans. Totally, yeah. My, my mom is, like, an incredibly funny person, and she... I mean, Curb Your Enthusiasm. Uh, I mean, she loves loves comedy. She watches so much comedy now, too. So was there a point where they were afraid or frightened of your desire to get into it? Like, because I know most parents, mine included, are like, that seems crazy. I mean, how does anyone make a living at that? Like, it seems like a long shot. I'm sure. I'm sure they did. And it does probably seem like a long shot. But they always just... I mean, like, my parents just, like, think I'm perfect, you know? Like, I just, I'm like Kate Middleton to my parents. Like, I could do nothing wrong. And so they, for the long, I mean, I had tough parents. I was scared, scared of them, really scared of them until I was, like, 15 or 16. But they were so supportive of me. Uh, they just thought I could do anything. So like, tough in what way? Um, When I said I was scared, I was scared of my parents. Like, I was scared of them. They weren't, like, my pals, you know, growing up. I didn't have one of these houses where... Uh, you know, people, you know, I, you're like, have a glass of wine to like the 16 year old at dinner, you yeah. know? Um, I, I got, my parents told me, I remember my mom told me, she's like, I don't want you to be having sex until you go to college. Like these are things that were like expectations. Well, that was good. Not married, but college. <laughs> yeah. Of course. I was like, uh, I was like, no problem. That's not going to be an issue here. It's kind of flattering mom that you think that, but they were, and I had to do like my homework and I couldn't go out on school nights and things like that. But, um, uh, I mean, I like structure, so for me, I've always liked it, even now. So I didn't mind that. You like structure, yeah. 
because it's it, uh, you know, it, then you know where you're going and what you're doing. The, the worst thing to me would be like to go on like those sandals commercials for vacations where you're supposed to just like lay on a beach with some hot guy or something like uh-huh. that and look at the water. That's the worst thing <laughs> to me. I don't like that seems so boring. So do you go on vacation? I I. So I like it. Theoretically, I like it. I went to Buenos Aires two years ago, and I thought that was an amazing trip. I had a great time, and there's a lot of history there. But like, that, I could do that for like a long weekend, and then by Monday night, I would want to go back to work. Like, yeah, let's get back to life. Yeah. Yeah, and enough of this. Yeah. Do, do when you travel? Do you do like you know like I got to know the history of this place. I got to find out. Like, like that's usually the most interesting thing for me. I love like true crime. So when I went to Buenos Aires, I the thing that was most interesting to me was like the disappearings, you know, like I wanted to see like the political stuff and I took like a bus tour. Like I didn't, I wasn't the disappearings bus tour. <laughs> disappearings bus tour. <laughs> yeah. They kind of, kind of actually we'd like drove around all the main places where different people had been kidnapped. And like, um, I mean that, I mean, that's an amazing city, the, but I wasn't interested in like the tango as much, you know, like that wasn't or like the party, like, you know, it's in Buenos Aires, a big party area. Interesting. I uh, it could be. I didn't like. I'm, I didn't I'm thinking of, of Rio. No, Rio, Rio is seems like, like just a, an immoral, you know, hellhole. Yeah. yeah. Of uh, debauchery. <laughs> My brother lived in Buenos Aires, really, and there's a, isn't there sort of a weird kind of like you know, uh, renegade Nazis after World War II went to Buenos Aires. Yeah. And, no. So this is speaking of true. I mean, all I'd want to do, yeah, Buenos Aires, you know, Bolivia. Right. Just to me, the idea, like when I was walking down the street, I was like, I any nine year old man that I see right now. <laughs> Right. Could have been in like in Buchenwald's like doing orders. I mean, that is incredibly interesting to me. The 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 walking down the street and going, I wonder if he was the dentist. Yeah. Right. The Nazi Nazi hunter. Yeah. Is- Wiesenthal. Simon Wiesenthal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did, so he did, was largely. I, I was obsessed with him for a while. He was unfortunately like kind of discredited later in his life. Was he? I didn't realize that. Yeah. Uh, for what? For making up Nazis? Exaggerating. Which, by the way, if you were hunting Nazis, wouldn't you embellish a little bit? I would. Right. Yeah, What's that, your fascination with... Uh, with do you have a... Well, of- I'm, BJ Novak, who you know, uh, has said about me that I'm like obsessed with justice. And I think that's really true. And I think that um, the thing about the thing about Nazi hunters is that, I mean, that's just... That's like obsessed with justice writ large. I mean, that's just like, and it's also very dramatic and uh, continent hopping and things. Like I find it, yeah, I find it interesting. Do you, do you so if you're obsessed with justice, does, do you, is there a sense on a daily basis that things aren't fair? Do you, I mean, do you fight some sort of good fight in your mind? Yeah, or? like, yeah, I think so, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Like, do you get like when, when political things like Occupy Wall Street or any of this stuff, does that resonate? Oh, God. Okay, so now... Like it, it should. Yeah. If I was a like a better person, more politically minded person, it would. <laughs> right. But I'm talking more about like why parking meters don't accept pennies. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> you give us pennies, right? The government, but they yeah. won't accept them because they also hate them. Like yeah. that to me, like I hate that. But um, so just the tiny things and the yeah. historical things, but right. in any kind of like the, the practical sort of fighting the uh, the powers that are are unjust in society is like I gotta work. I know. <laughs> It's exhausting. I, it's bad. That's bad. That's no, no, bad I'm the same way. It's not. I don't think that. Like, I like to say, I'm not apathetic. I'm inactive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, but okay. Well, tell me about this true crime thing, because uh, you know I'm dating a woman who's fairly obsessed with it. We're, oh we're, yeah. Yes. Just in when in terms of what, like, does she love reading true crime or? Oh yeah. She, like, she reads. Or? She reads the blogs. Okay. Uh, murder blogs. Mm-hmm. Uh, she watches the murder shows. Okay. Uh, the you know the um, the crime shows. So can I ask you a question? Yeah. 
when I read that, I get very scared. I'm not like deadened to it. I'm very scared by it. Does she ever, has she ever thought you were trying to kill her or anything like no. that? No. Okay. Um, I, I think she likes the unfolding. Uh, like she's involved in reading about, reading blogs of cases that are still kind of trying to be solved. Okay. Oh, uh, oh, oh. And, you know, she likes sort of the, the process of, of how they're going about trying to find the murderer and what the murderer did okay. and how to protect herself from, you know, possibilities, you Have know. Have seen The Staircase? No. Oh. Why? What? She'd love it. It's a. It's like a nine-part documentary about a, a couple and the a woman like fell down the staircase and mm-hmm. died, but it was unclear. There's so much blood at the scene of the crime. They weren't sure if the husband had actually been the one who murdered it. It, it unfolds, and there's so many twists and turns. I really recommend it. And it's true. Oh yeah, it's true. Happened in North Carolina. Is there closure? Yeah. Yes. But the the what you learn over the course of the documentary about each of them is so unbelievable. Great holiday present. Oh really? Yeah, the staircase documentary. I'm gonna write Gotta it down. Get it. Gotta gonna, get it. Really? She likes true crime. Oh my god, this she, is it. And and outside of justice, what what do you think is? Because it seems like that's more than just justice. Do you like the, the 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 menace and the morbidity and the like? You know, knowing finding out about people and what they're capable of. Um, you mean in just true crime and yeah, stuff? Yeah, yeah. Well, I go to truetv.com yeah. sometimes to read about crimes because well, one thing that's very scary to me is that if something is too grisly and too disturbing, you simply won't hear about it, which is, to me, the worst. Like if there's a 9-11 photographs, like when people are jumping out of the building. Right. You didn't see it because it was t- considered too disturbing. And there's certain crimes that have been committed, like the, uh, the Wichita massacre and things like that, where you don't hear about it because it's too disturbing. But that's, to me, the wrong way to think of it. You should should be hearing about just the worst ones. I live alone. I'm like, I'm a single woman living in West Hollywood alone. I feel like I should constantly hear about weird break-ins and like, you know, home invasion situations because I've never set my alarm on. My doors are always unlocked. So, um, now do you, that seems, those are two things you seem like you have some control over. (laughs) Yes. I didn't make it sound like that just happened to me. Like I can't. Right, right. There's nothing I can do to lock my door or, and the alarm. I don't know what it does. Yeah. no, but I so I do like it because it is it's uh, it's grisly. No, but I, I in the in our writers room too. I like go on people. That's been a fixation of mine for a long time. Is like uh, true crime. Yeah, I uh, like even just last night we were walking back from a party and she was tired of her heels and she took her shoes off and was walking down the street and she goes, "This makes me nervous." And I'm like, "Why?" And she's like, "Cause that girl that got kidnapped and disappeared, she didn't have shoes on." And I'm like, "Well, I'm here and we're in Los Feliz." <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't think- Which girl, J.C. Dugard? The one at the college campus, I think. Oh, it, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know which one that is. I think so. Do, they, it, like she got picked up by a truck, and there's all these people who are friends, and they don't know what happened to her. I think it was in, like in Wisconsin or somewhere, maybe Madison. Or, oh, yeah, this is the one who's like on Twitter, right? Like all the time they're tweeting the, about it about her sister. Please yeah. help. Yeah. God, so sad. It was her boyfriend, though. It seemed very clear. But how have they not solved that? See, that's the other thing that scares me about that shit is that the the sad thing about police shows and procedural shows and all mm-hmm. the fiction is that there's closure. Not, like it's got to be like eighty percent of the time, yeah. they don't figure this. They don't figure it out. I thought the statistic was the other way around. That eighty percent of the time you do figure okay, it. Okay, I'm. I just. I just winged the statistics, but there's a right. big chunk. Okay. that are unsolved. It's. Do, do you, don't you like the cold crime stuff? I love that stuff. Yeah. I don't watch it, but the idea that they can find a tooth now and track it down. Like yeah, that. that's awesome. So, okay. So when did you move to Hollywood? Um, 2004. And was that on, did you come on a deal or were you completely just like- Did I come on a deal? No, no, no. I um, I came, I was doing an off-off Broadway play here called Matt and Ben, which uh-huh. I wrote and was in. And um, I did that play here for, I think, like, a couple months. And then Greg Daniels, who hired me in the office, he saw that. 
and that was it. That, that was changed it. the game. That changed the game. Where did that play start, and what, how did it end up in L.A.? I wrote the play in New York with my best friend, and we were. Uh, she's my best friend from college, and she's still my best friend. And we we wrote it uh, the year I graduated college. She's a year older than me. Yeah. And um, yeah, we just. The play's about Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, uh-huh. and I play Ben Affleck, and she's Matt Damon, and it's a, just a, it's a one, it's a one, it's an hour long, really absurd comedy play where um, she's Matt Damon and I'm Ben Affleck, and uh, yeah. And where did that? Where did you put it up in New York? Were you involved with the uh, UCB or, or anything no, like that? No, I wasn't. No, I, I, uh, it was at the Fringe Festival. Uh-huh. We submitted to the Fringe. We like uh, saved up our money and submitted it to the Fringe Festival, and then we did it there. And after Fringe Festival, um, we, we we won Best Play there, which helped us get to do a show at PS122. Which is oh, yeah. Great. I've done the shows there. It's yeah. nice. Big, yeah. big room. Yeah, it's great. And so we did it there for a while, and that's when it started getting, like, attention. But So it was just a spontaneous thing. You didn't come out here like, you know, a manager said you should do it. You were just like, let's do it. Yeah. I mean, the producers for the show were, were like, put it up and got us. We subletted a place from, you know, whatever. And we just, yeah, that was it. And it was just that organic. You were not connected in any way and it just happened. Connected in any way, meaning like... Like there was not an, like a huge amount of buzz that drove you out here and people saying like, oh, we've, you know, you've got to, you know, this well, is it. Okay, so I, um, when it was at PS122, yeah. that is when like it was like, like Rolling Stone and mm-hmm. like different magazines were like writing about oh, okay. it. Okay, so that's what. So you did get a little heat. That's what kind of made them feel like it might do well in L.A. And what was your like when you when you did the show? I mean, because Greg Daniels is a big guy, and and he's just you know he's a smart guy, and he, mm-hmm. he saw something in you. But when you did the show, what was what? Did you have any sort of idea where it would go or where it would head, or it was just this funny thing that grew out of a college kind of like this is funny? We didn't. I mean, I think we both knew like this wasn't like this couldn't be like a show. Like I'm not right. gonna play Ben Affleck professionally, and so I we just thought I don't know. This is a good Andre to maybe somebody maybe wanting to pay us to write something else that was more so you, okay right yeah. right so you you're there was part of you that was like i want to have a career as a writer oh yeah i mean that's i knew that since there was like 10 that i wanted to write since you were transcribing snl scripts yeah <laughs> and the acting thing was secondary really yes and when did you figure out that you were funny like when in my life did I figure out? It well, was I mean, funny? like when you were doing sketch and stuff. I mean, like was there? Uh, were you afraid to go on stage? I mean, when did that start happening? Oh, where you were performing I a mean, lot? Um, well, live performance and like doing the show are, as you know, like incredibly different things. Like when I started doing stand up, like twenty five. You did straight stand up. Yeah. Really? Mm-hmm. Where'd you start that? Um, I would do it at. Well, I saw BJ, who I met on the office. I would like, go see him do stand up around town, different like here. Yeah, he would even do like okay. open mics at like places and like coffee shops in like the valley. No, I remember seeing him at those. Yeah. And so um, I started signing up to do open mics, and because uh, I didn't like have a lot of friends, I didn't have, have a lot to do here because my friend moved back to New York, and I only had my friends from the office who weren't really my friends yet, even. So you're already doing the office when he started doing stand up. Yeah. But you did sketch in college. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So BJ kind of coaxed you into it or like He like he didn't discourage me or encourage me. I just went to go see him. And I remember one night I saw him perform. God, it was um it was like just before the UCB. It's where Scott and BJ used to do Comedy Death Ray. I forget what the venue uh, was called. Embar. Embar. Yeah. And I saw I think it was it Louis CK and 
was it Bob Odenkirk where they're doing like a show? They were doing like stand up together. Really? Yeah, for That's like seven seven minutes, ten minutes, and it was the coolest. I couldn't believe that how cool it was. Yeah. Well, I'm really drawn to that. I mean, one of the reasons why I thought he's so great, or you know, even BJ, is that they are their style of comedy is so different than mine. I mean, like. That's just like the that's that's it shows so much restraint as comedy, and I, th- I think that's so uh, impressive. Well, he's like BJ. Like when I first met him, I could not. It was very hard for me to decipher who he was or what his personality was. Absolutely, yeah. And that there was a, a, an incredible will and and focus on joke writing. Yeah. And uh, it was pretty amazing that, like, he could get the response that he was getting, and I had no clue of where it was coming from. Remember what it was like? I mean, that when you're a very open person, the way I am, and right. to almost to a fault sometimes, I think, mm-hmm. um, and you're very generous with the details about your life. When you see something like that, and also if you just know him personally, he's just so like. Uh, you could know him, you could pet him 10 times and not know what he's really like. I mean, I know him extremely well and he's a very warm, gentle, sweet person, but like, I think that's so cool. I mean, that's like the definition of cool to me. But then there's other people like Chris Rock or or Louis C.K. where you know so much about their life and their observations, um, but it, it's, they're, you're, they're completely letting you into their world, um, which is also so um, admirable. So how was your first stand-up experiences? Uh, like mortifying that. I mean, ultimately, I mean, this is, this is a terrible reason to ever be inspired, but I think more often than not, I am inspired by this. You, like you see stand up, and it's so bad that you're like, why I can't, I please let me do this. I mean, that's not a very pure way to go about it. I know that's spite, not. Spite. You're spite. Like, yeah. And at that time point, I'd go to see stand up and I was like, it'd be like, it'd be like a girl playing like a ukulele with like no jokes, no point of view. And I was like, what? This is like considered the best person, the mm-hmm. best woman comedian or whatever it is. Right. Um, and obviously I wasn't seeing like the people that were really great, like Sarah and right. Tig and all those people. But the people that were like the exciting up and comers just made me so angry. Or they would just do this like cathartic, like very like X-rated stuff about how they'd been raped and you're supposed to like laugh about that or something. And, and I was like, this is terrible. This is the, this is awful and embarrassing. I should, I should be doing this. Really? So you have, it's interesting. You use the word X rated. I like that. It's, it's sort of uh, nostalgic in a way. <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> do you, so do you find that, you know, some like, especially female comedians who, who clearly have a certain uh, investment in shocking, you know, using, you know, rape and, child uh, abuse and whatnot as as launching points for humor do you have a, a like an issue with that i mean i don't have like an it's or certainly it's like not my cup of tea but i do think and this is not just for female comedians it's for all comedians it's uh-huh. like i like i don't you i mean um you know like the power of shock sure it's like an amazing thing yeah but it is so anybody can do it. Like any person can do it. You don't have to have be like a skilled person. Right. You don't have to be like an artist to shock anybody. Right. And so when people are, when you make jokes about abortion or you even say the word abortion, you get people's attention in a way that I just am like, that's any person can do that. And so I don't have a, like a, like a real political issue with it. I just think it's like, just not kind of my cup of tea. Cheap. Yeah. Easy. I think so, yeah. Yeah, because obviously you like blue comedy. I mean, you like Louie. Mm-hmm. You know, there there's ways... Is he considered, like, blue, would you say? No, no, I mean, I'm saying when, you know, when, you know, a lot of your jokes 
will will end in masturbation Mm -hmm. or or some form of (laughs) yes if someone's coming on somebody i would say that that there's blue is a fine you know he's a a great all-around comic but Mm -hmm. he's he's a dirty boy yeah so it's not dirty that bothers you. It's just it's cheap laughs based on like the thing that you find appealing about about BJ is that the discipline of creating jokes and and performing you know in a way that requires some thought and some craft. Right, like you could see a BJ's one of BJ's acting. You never know that if his heart had ever been broken or if he ever had any like issue or hang up. Like that, see, that bothers me because I'm grav- I gravitate towards people who can't hide themselves. Mm-hmm. And like I've talked to BJ, I've had him on a live show, mm-hmm. and he always I, I always found him like he he's clearly you know very focused and he's got a lot of ambition and he's you know he works hard. Mm-hmm. But I would watch him do stand up and and I'd be like, who, who is that kid? Yeah, I get that he writes, but like, what's he been through? But isn't that the great thing? There's like lots of different ways to be. Oh yeah, funny. No, I, I like him. And, yeah, and, and no, no. I, it wasn't the, easy for me to like him. <laughs> <laughs> it took a while. No, I, I get that too. And what what kind of jokes were you talking about when you did your stuff? Were you just blasting away at your personal life, or did you ha- did you write jokes? Oh yeah, no, I definitely wrote jokes. I mean, especially since I'd come from this, these like seeing comedy like largely like jokeless sets that were based on the fact that you were adorable. Like that was sort of what I was responding to is uh-huh. like when I would see that. So I wrote like, I definitely wrote jokes, but I, I think that, you know, and I, I, I moved with the letter. Like I was going to colleges. I was like touring and doing 45 minute sets and like spending the weekends at like all these random towns across the country. And I was doing it like for real doing it. But I found that, um, it's, I didn't have the time that you need. You really right. do need so much time to go up and find out the thing that you have the most to say about, you know, like I wasn't sure. So you got an opportunity because of your visibility on the office to, to sell some tickets. Well, and, uh, no, and also because I was funny, like my, no, no, I think funny, you're funny, but like, but I'm just res- was, responding to like, you didn't feel like you had gone as far as you could go with stand up. No, I didn't. And I, if in order to do it more, I would have to spend more time. More and did time you tour alone? Did you have an opening act? Did you tour with BJ? Did, how did it work? No, I toured alone. Uh-huh. Um, I did a couple shows with Craig Robinson. Um, but I think that was like before he was on The Office. And he would, I mean, he just plays the piano and he's he sings so these songs. He's so funny. I mean, he kills yeah. in colleges. He's so funny. Yeah, he's I saw really him the funny. other night. He just showed up somewhere where I, 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 was, I did some guy's show in Santa Monica. And I just all of a sudden, Craig Robinson's in the back of the room. Yeah. So how did it evolve when you, when you first got the gig on The Office? You were just cast or was the deal originally to write and perform or how that? It was uh, originally to write. Mm-hmm. And then, um, um, I started acting in the, the second episode. Oh, so it was, oh, really? He had a, Greg had put us on writer-performer contracts. Mm-hmm. So that first season, all, all six of us ended up kind of being on camera in one form or the other. So, you were, so you're sort of like, it was kind of like being in uh, the uh, the reserves. Like you, you knew you had a contract that would enable you to perform, but you didn't know when you would be called to duty. Yeah, it wasn't <laughs> until like he decided to put me in the show that I said, okay, well, we'll have to figure out some, and he was like, it's actually already in your contract. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. How long did it take for you to sort of integrate? Because it's an ensemble show, mm-hmm. obviously. So how long did it take for you to feel confident? I mean, what were when you first started performing, I mean, what what was that? What what were your fears? Uh, my first scene I ever yeah. did in the office is I had to slap Steve Carell. Uh-huh. That was like the entire scene. Uh-huh. So that was very, I was incredibly nervous uh, then. It took a while. It took like maybe two two years for me to really feel like I feel like comfortable holding my own. Is it still a blast? 
Yeah, it's still fun. I mean, like anything else, like as you as I've gotten done the show more and I've become more like senior, Mm -hmm. it's everything just becomes more fun when you like feel more powerful. Yeah. So that's that's yeah. And do you is there like any is there any fear that in yourself, like when when Carell was leaving and and things were changing, was is there ever fear that it'll get stale or that you're not going to be excited about it? Uh, uh, no, I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't feel that way. No, mm-hmm. I know p- other people do. Yeah, for sure. And I know plenty of magazine articles think that or whatever, but I, um, love Steve. Steve was so great. Um, so fucking funny. So funny. <laughs> and like, I just, but the, the rest of the people that are still in the cast is like, they're, if you, if you said to a network, Hey, I want to do a show with like John Krasinski, Rain Wilson, Ed Helms, Craig Robinson, whoever else they would be like that sounds like the best show in the world so if i think about the show that way in terms of like guys if we were just a pilot how fucking awesome would that show be and i just that sort of makes me feel excited about it and how many episodes have you written on your own 23 really yeah that's amazing thanks and and how does that work since i'm not i've never been a television writer now, when is, that re- is that something you really want to know how a TV show was written? That's like something that you think is interesting. No, because I, for myself, it's when I had uh, I had I've written a script before for me. Okay. And the job of being a writer, mm-hmm. uh, I don't. I'm interested in it though because literally, there's part of me that just learned that when you're a writer on the show, that you are sort of given, you know, you're going to write this episode. Mm-hmm. And then you, then everybody sort of takes a crack at it. Is that generally how it works? Like you write the episode and then if it requires sort of group mind. You, yeah, you, you, it goes up on a screen in a room and everyone, you go through it and people give suggestions for jokes and things. Yeah, that's, that's interesting to me. Yeah. It's not my life. Yeah. When you get an episode, is there a moment where you're like, oh, fuck. Yeah, no, I mean, so there's, you know, 22 episodes a year and Paul Lieberstein has to get through them. And if you show an attachment or if you've pitched a lot of good jokes for like an episode, yeah. oftentimes you kind of know that he's going to assign it to you. But, and um, is that like a dread thing or are you excited about it? Sometimes you're like, God, I hope I get assigned that. It's like, I love writing the Christmas episodes and I've written those for the past couple of years. And I'm so, that's the one I want. So a lot of times the the general pitch of the show is, you know, like, you know, so-and-so gets this. The, the plot points are already kind of laid out. Yeah, it's like we have, um, we have a bulletin board that we've put cards up on. And once it's carded, which means that you have like the first act, second act, third act, uh-huh. um, then that's the point where Paul has to, tell someone to go do an outline Mm -hmm. which is like the extended version of that right and so at that point once you're doing the outline you pretty much know that you're gonna write the episode and because you're on you know you're now you've been in the cast for so long and you've been around these people you know you're writing for very defined characters yes yeah like when you write do do you because i'm 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 like i'm have a book deal and i'm writing a book and you just wrote a book yeah is everyone hanging out without me is that a real fear yeah yeah me too (laughs) I hate it. Uh, but there's a lot of dread involved in my process. I don't find a lot of joy. And, and the, the wrestling with a script or anything else is like, ugh. Like, and, and, I, and it really, it, it, when it starts to break through, it's exciting. But it, I think given the opportunity, I would not do it. Not write the book. Any of it. Can I say something? Because I've now written scripts and I've written, obviously I wrote my book, is that the book was the most daunting thing I've ever had to do. Because a script is like a script for a TV show. It's a puzzle. It's and it's a puzzle. It's thirty-two pages long. Right. You can read that in a night. In fact, you can read five of them in a night. You'd be fine. My book, when I'd like go back and be looking for my book, I was like, 
I can't, fuck, I'm not gonna be able to like get through this tonight and like look at it as a whole. So you always have a certain amount of uncertainty. Right. And so, I mean, luckily my book is made up of smaller pieces. So I could kind of tackle those. But, right. you know, I didn't even have like Microsoft Word on my computer because I just use our- Final um, draft. Yeah, the script writing program. Yeah. So I did like buy Microsoft Word <laughs> and then install that on my computer. It was really, it was like expensive. And mm-hmm. then sat there in front of like a, just a the blank page. Which was, um, but you had the discipline in place. You knew that, you know. No, I didn't. I didn't start writing my book till about I think probably like five or six months after that. I was still sort of like had the glow of having sold a book and yeah. felt like that was fun. Yeah. And then I it was took about five or six months to really start getting into it. So when you had about five or six months to write it, that's when you started. And I, I had like seven or eight months to write it, but I give. I didn't do anything for a long time. But and maybe you- I needed to do that. I don't know. No, I, I, well, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, I'm, I'm driven by panic. Mm-hmm. Are yeah, you? Absolutely. And you like structure. So once you know the structure is there, you just sort of panic and then, you know, just dump that energy into the structure and I that's think it. So. But like TV scripts, it's interesting in my limited experience of it, it, you, you do sort of move things around, you know, when things are supposed to turn and when something's supposed to happen. Mm-hmm. The reason I, I'm fascinated with the office around this stuff, and I, and I really don't talk to a lot of people about the process is that you want to believe a lot of that is improvised. Mm-hmm. You know, that the nature of the show and, and the, the way it's shot, like I always want to believe that it's completely natural and, and it just happened organically. Mm-hmm. How much of that happens? Um, a pretty small percentage, especially now that Steve is gone because he's like a masterful improviser. But yeah. Um, I think a pretty pretty small percentage. I, I mean, you, if you'd ask Ed or Rand, they might say more, but I I think it's like five percent. Really? Yeah. And when Steve was there, like you, you didn't know what he was going to do sometimes, or yeah, no, Steve uh, would improvise more. Maybe it was more like ten percent of the time. But you know, for the most part, like uh, actors want that same structure too. Like they don't, they, you know, they improvise, but only after like seven takes of it getting getting it scripted or whatever. So, uh, but with Steve and with Rain especially, their improvisations have have really helped episodes. Yeah, like I mean, they're what they've improvised was uh, was incredible. Do you have a specific moment in mind where you were just sort of like, "Oh my god"? Yeah, it was. A, I wrote an episode called "The Injury," second season of the show, and um, Rain improvised a. A line when he's going getting into the van it's meredith's van meredith is like the drunk and they borrowed the van and jim john's character jim is driving rain to the hospital because he got into an accident uh-huh. and he's a little delirious and um he's michael and jim are telling dwight not to act up so much and he goes i don't know it do, i'm not saying it doesn't sound so hilarious now but right. he says um I don't work for this van or something like as Michael was his boss. And I just was extremely funny. And like, it just, uh, it's, uh, it was one of those moments where it's yeah, like, it was, oh, just, it was so great. It was, yeah. Where did that come from? It was, yeah, it was awesome. Yeah. I mean, you get an amazing opportunity to work with some pretty spectacular comedic forces. You being one of them. <laughs> Thank you. So, okay. So you're doing some movies. You've been in a few movies. Mm-hmm. What, what is the, the book is doing well. Yeah. And you're happy with it? Super happy. Number six, The New York Times. But I mean, outside of that, you don't... Just the success. I can only think about the success. Yeah. No, it's fun. I like it. It's the first thing... I I was saying it's terrifying because it's the first thing that... The Office is great and my episodes of The Office are great, but it's such a group of people who put Mm -hmm. it together and do it. Mm -hmm. But the book was the first time where if it was succeeded or failed, it would just be me. It's the kind of the purest expression of like what I'm about or what I 
want to write about or what my sense of humor is. So that was uh, really uh, that whole week before. And I was like, why am I so anxious? And I think that's that's the reason. Are there any in, in the book? Is there anything that you felt was emotionally risky or do you in retrospect think like, oh, why did I put that in there or why didn't I put this in there? Yeah, there's some personal stuff in there that I um, am always nervous about. Like what? Um, you know, I, I will say not. I was pretty confident going into it that nothing in there would like offend anybody or anything but like in your family or in the general population i think both i mean um i have a thing where like like anybody else i've had traumatic things happen to me and like i have stories that i could you know talk about and have battled with lots of demons and things like that but i'm not as interested in writing about it and i think um and i think it has a lot to do with the fact that like i i have parents and i don't want them to be uh, shocked shocked or like made sad or whatever and I think those are a lot of artists who can write stuff um, and they don't they don't necessarily think about that or their parents are just so cool that it wouldn't do whatever but I didn't I have this thing where I'm like I'd want my I, I want to be like a good role model and not talk about like sex or you know drugs and that kind of stuff as much but um, I don't even know if I'm answering your question I forget no you're answering my question I, I mean I think what you're saying is that you wrote a line you know, out of respect for yourself, for your family, and, and out of public perception that you thought that, you know, instead of not unlike your reaction to shock comics, mm-hmm. that there there was something, you know, how you wanted to present yourself, you had control over that. Well, and also, I mean, it wasn't that hard. I haven't lived this life where I've had so many, like, addictions or, like, these humiliating sexual experiences. You don't have a sordid No, path. I don't have that. So it's, like, not the place where I draw a lot of inspiration from. But some people have had incredibly interesting lives, really colorful stuff happen to them. Um, and, and actually, some people can write about things like depression or drug addiction like really well. Mm-hmm. And they can uh, they can find a, a lot of good stuff out of it that's actually entertaining. But I don't I don't have that. Well, what are your demons? What are my demons? Mm-hmm. When you say you've struggled with demons, um, it's not in the book. I mean, I'm just sort of curious. Because like, you know, talking to you and, and seeing where you came from and what you've done, there's part of me that thinks like, you know, what could be her problem? Like what? Or what are my issues? Well, I mean, well, I mean what, what sort of plagues you? What are these battles? If you have demons, um, I, mean, I don't think I've ever asked that question in such a general and, and yeah. straightforward way. Because you said, like, you know, I didn't put my demons in there. Now I know, like, I know. What are they? Maybe, maybe I haven't, I haven't, you know, I haven't sat and thought about them that much. Well, I, I mean, are you inordinate? Are you like hard on yourself? Do you like you know what would you say? The, like, what are your biggest sort of obstacles on a day to day basis in your mind? I think that again, you know, I would say that as much as I love this podcast, I'd probably not use this as a platform to talk about all of that necessarily. I'm not looking for all of it. I was just looking There's for some one, of it. just a tip of the iceberg. Maybe. Um, uh, I guess I'm. <laughs> I think I'm, I don't know, I'm like a very competitive person. I'm like incredibly impatient. Yeah. I mean, these are things that I would change about myself. Um, like competitive, like do you have that sort of like, oh, fuck her, I'm going to show them. And yeah, I mean, are you driven by a certain amount of spite and the desire to win? Do yeah, think- I'm definitely driven by like a desire to win for sure. Yeah. Have you won? I'm, I don't know. I, that I probably will never think that I, <laughs> are I'm you doing winning? fine. Yeah. I'm doing fine. I'm doing okay. <laughs> You're I'm in the race. Okay. Yeah. And in terms of uh, so no sordid drug pass, okay. I mean, I'm not I'm not trying to press. I wish you. I would. I wouldn't. I don't want you to think of me as that kind of person either. I want you to be like, oh, Mindy Kaling, she was like a daisy. What a great girl. Like I, you know. No, I don't think that. I I uh, I, I I think that 
you, you seemed honestly to me, you seem very, you know, focused, very driven and very capable of handling your success um, and uh, ambitious. And, you know, those are all good things. But if I just tweak that knob, I could see them as a little bit demonic. <laughs> it's interesting because you have this thing where, you know, focused, ambi ambitious, you know, that where I know you don't mean it in the pejorative. I know that you mean it as or maybe you do mean in the pejorative. I, I don't what know. What do you mean by pejorative? Well. But like uh, that there's a way of someone that's funny. Like there's a like they're almost like when someone is funny, it's almost like it's a it's a gift because you don't understand it or where it comes from. Right. It flows out of them in a way right. that's it's magical. Mm hmm. And the thing about when you have your shit together largely and you don't sleep till noon and you take vitamins or do mm -hmm. whatever mm -hmm. else, you know, and or you're Indian, Indian American, you go to a good college is that I think there tends to be this thing where it's like, well, the fountain must not flow as, as magically from her because she's more in control of her life. Mm -hmm. Like if I were to, you know, if I was like Mitch Hedberg, all mm -hmm. right, total brilliant guy, secretly kind of out of control. Um, kind of secret until the end, yeah. Well, I mean, I didn't know. <laughs> yeah, but less yeah. secret to you who probably sure. were friends with him. But like that, you envy that because I'm not like that. You know, like I I am, I don't have that uh, thing that's out of control or whatever. And I think that there's this thing where you're like, man, if I was, if I was a little bit more that way or more like, if I had that, then maybe people would think, like, like comedy people, like they'd be like, oh, well, you know, she's the real deal. She's the real deal, or like right. she's extra funny because of it. I mean, you know, that's not something that bothers me a lot, but it's something that like I think about. So okay, so you thought that I was like, you know, it was sort of demeaning for me to say those things because you think that yeah, my, you're not like my the barrage. first thing you notice about you. You're fucking funny. You're awesome. You tell it how it is. You're like. What a focused, punctual person you are. And I'm like, what? That's not how you describe a great... No, It's no. okay. I'm, I'm fine. I'm, I'm okay with it. But I, I do think that's, I think that's uh, interesting. Well, no, I, I've had to, you know, as I do this podcast and as I talk to people that are, you know, significantly younger than me in, in the industry, that mm -hmm. I'm actually impressed... Look, I know a lot of drugged out whack jobs who, you know, didn't make it. Mm -hmm. And I know a few that have held on and a few have burned brightly and then, you know, died or disappeared. I mean, yeah. I, I see all that stuff. I, I don't have a like I no longer think that the, the only people that are worth it are people that have really pushed themselves to the edge. Mm -hmm. I have a slight envy and I'm certainly not being condescending in the fact that there are people that are funny that realize they're funny and realize how they're funny mm -hmm. and how to sort of capitalize on that personally and as a career mm -hmm. you know, fairly early on. I never had that. Yeah. And, I, and I'm not and, and I'm certainly not condescending in the sense that like I cannot say like you know my way is better mm -hmm. or anything else. I'm, I'm a little uh, envious of it. I'm not I'm not putting you into some play. I mean, you're very funny and you do great work. But I do know that, you know, you have your shit together mm -hmm. and I don't. So it's not coming from a place where oh, I, interesting. <laughs> I'm not, you know, I'm not sitting here saying like, you know, my look at my system's better. I'm in my garage, mm -hmm. you know, and you're on a brilliant TV show. No, but I mean, it's interesting. Like you're more like you're like more of an Alexander Payne character than like I would be. You know what I mean? That's like, true. And it's nice. And I mean, that is a compliment. Like, mm -hmm. um, well, I like hearing that you have a slight envy of that. That you, in, in a way, you sort of struggle with, well, like... Yeah, when you're an Indian woman who wants to do comedy and you're trying to, like, do stand-up and go to M-Bar, like, I have grown accustomed to being underestimated. Different people have different chips on their shoulders, right? Some people, it's that they were... Or, or maybe they're whatever. expecting you to be Indian. Yeah, in a, or to in, want to like, talk to about... a caricature. Exactly, talking about Indian stuff. Mm -hmm. Or if it's not, then it's, like, being a woman and, like, what kind of, like, girly things mm -hmm. am I going to talk about? And... um 
so so I always like you know everyone has a chip on their shoulder, and I think that's probably mine. Maybe I don't that, know. That's that people pigeonhole you before you even open your mouth. I think so. Uh huh. Yeah, but I do that to other people. But I'm always I love being surprised. But um. So that was something you had to transcend. Is like in in a way that you you made an assumption you know from experience that people mm-hmm. were waiting you for you to go oh hello or they were <laughs> or they were waiting for you to be hackneyed as a woman or like yeah like do you my mother's like make some observations about like yeah and do my parents accent and do you like <laughs> standard, what it's like being the, the ethnic format yeah 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 my mother yeah right right and, which is like so like gross to me I mean it's just like super, super hackneyed gross. yeah definitely. is that the main grossness <laughs> yeah. And and you think it's sort of demeaning for someone to do that? Yeah, I mean, I I think it is demeaning, and I I have this thing with my Indianness or whatever that uh-huh. I have this thing where I feel like I don't I don't I don't deny it, and I don't want to rely on it. And when it's interesting, it'll be it then I'll do something about it. And if not, then I mean I forget I'm Indian most of the time. I think I identify as like a Jewish male because that's the people <laughs> I spend time with. No, really, like I will go out to lunch with our writing staff. I'll go to lunch, and I'll be walking by like a like a window or something and I'm like fuck I am Indian like I don't look like these guys at all and not only am I Indian I'm like a dark skinned Indian woman I'm not like this guy named Ruben from you know right. Great Neck you're not pudgy with a beard no but I'm like that's how I feel like I mean that's you just start feeling I think like everyone that you work with oh that's hilarious well I I, I found that to be the case but um you know, I'm very impressed with uh, with your your career and your output, and I, and I think you're great. And I, I hope you. it wasn't. Uh, I hope I didn't seem. No, like no, no, no. I, I am. I, I'm so. I mean, I love this podcast. I think it's so great. I mean, I've listened to so many of them, and the way that you talk to someone that you came up with. Yeah. I mean, we obviously didn't come up together. We don't even have like the same. I think jobs. We, did we meet once? I don't know. I don't know if we even met. I feel like I know you. That's a weird thing because, really? like, I well, only because like it's one of those situations where I, I love your character. So there's part of me that you know, and I I have to fight a certain fanboyness with certain people where I'm like I I just not I can't. Who's been the most uh, like fanboyish? Per- like, who have you gone on the show and you've like I'm so this is awesome. Well, there's well well there's comics that I love talking to and mm-hmm. I have a lot of respect for. You know, well, Richard Lewis, Jonathan Winters, yeah. you know, Odin Kirk, McDonald. You know, and a lot of them are my peers. Right. You know, and um, and and a lot of people I came up with or I kind of knew. But like John Hamm, I had a very difficult time <laughs> separating him from so, Don Draper. You know, for like he's stymied by his good looks. No, that. But like I, you know, I like. I can't get past a character, and same with Cranston. It's usually with actors, where where where, where Cranston's character in Breaking Bad. Like yeah. I'm I'm in a little obsessed with both of those characters. Fuck, Breaking Bad is so good. So good. Okay, cool thing about John Hamm, he drinks Budweiser. Sure, why, that's great. Yeah, there's a lot of cool things about John Hamm. Can you believe that? Yeah. If I was John Hamm, I would never. I'd never be within a hundred feet of a Budweiser. Oh, you know, you build a loyalty. You grow to rely on no, something. You, you believe in it. Get famous, and then you just ditch nah, everything that you came yeah. up with. Hey, Budweiser's Budweiser. You know what I mean? That I mean, tastes like shit. Like I can't. I feel like he's doing it to be like I'm still like this normal guy. And you're like, you're not. Hey, you're John Hamm. Maybe it does the job. <laughs> It does, Booze. certainly. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> Here, I, I uh, had these fortune cookies left over. Let's open them. And then I'll let you go because I know you got to be somewhere. When is this from? What is this? I don't know. They're from a Chinese restaurant. From how long ago? No, they're edible. And they're not too, not too old. What's your fortune? Um, you are open and honest in your philosophy of love. Mm. What do you think? Is that true? Honest. It doesn't seem true to me. Do you have a philosophy of love? 
Well, philosophy of love is like I, I'm not open and honest. I fully believe that girl thing of like, can't ever ask a guy, can't know anything about you, to be really demure and all that stuff. Oh, you do, yeah. That tends to work. Right, but for how long? Listen, I'm not looking for a husband. I mean, I'm talking about <laughs> this is, but this is this is not. Maybe this means like long term, like deep down. Mm-hmm. I got good things are coming to you in due course of time. That's great. Yeah, it's taken a while. <laughs> I like that one because it's out of your hands. You're like, great, perfect. Takes takes no is yours, introspection. Is yours in Spanish on the way on the other side? Oh yeah, that's hilarious. Los cosas buenas le llegaron a su debido tiempo. Hmm. All right. Can you do that in Latin? This one? <laughs> to us? No, no. I'm not. I'm not going to do that. That's that's nerdy. All right. Even I know. Could you do it though? Could I? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Tu est uh, expando et sacrum in uh, philosophia et amora. Nice. Thanks, Mindy, for coming. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Mindy. Lovely conversation. I I enjoy talking to her. And thank you, people, for listening. If you need anything WTF related, of course, go to WTFpod.com. Get your apps. Get your uh, premium episodes if you'd like to purchase those. Get on that mailing list. Kick in a few shekels. Buy a T-shirt. Do whatever you got to do. Leave a comment. Even though some of them are, you know, leave a little little to be desired. Is that how that saying goes? Justcoffee.coop. Haven't done this in a while. Let me kick it. Mm Mm-hmm. Pow! Wow, I just shit my pants. Justcoffee.coop, available at WTFpod.com. If you buy the WTF blend, I get a little on the back end. Get a a few shekels in the deal I made with the coffee folk up there. I hope you're okay. Come out and see me this weekend in Grand Rapids or come to Bloomington if you'd like. What what day was that? What did I do, what did I do with that piece of paper? Wait, how come I can't? Why would I take that piece of paper off and now not be able to find it? What is wrong with me? What's wrong with me? Hold on. Where's that piece of paper? Found it. Yeah, Indiana. March 23 and 20 through 25 or you go to laughfestgr dot org for the Grand Rapids Gilded Fest. That's uh, the 15th and the 17th. And Hulu.com for a day in the life. All right, all right. Okay. All right.